A U.S. Marine veteran fighting for Ukraine has been killed. The lead starts right now. Signs of Russian forces advancing in Ukraine as the U.S. detects improved Russian air and ground operations. The strategic targets hit that may be more evidence of the Russians' unfortunate progress, including a Ukrainian journalist killed in attacks on Kyiv. Also ahead, American Trevor Reed, finally back in the U.S. after being detained for more than two years in Russia. His parents will join us to share one of their son's most outstanding requests and a CNN exclusive, Fox in the White House, text messages revealing Sean Hannity telling Trump's chief of staff he was, quote, fed up with MAGA, quote, lunatics in the days before the insurrection. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our world lead in a desperate, renewed attempt to evacuate Ukrainian civilians from that besieged steel plant in Mariupol, Ukraine, now being blocked by the Russians. That's according to Ukrainian officials who had announced plans for a rescue operation early this morning. The need to evacuate made even more urgent after Russian forces dropped bombs on a makeshift hospital inside that steel plant complex, injuring more than 400 people, according to the mayor of Mariupol. While fighting intensifies in the east and the south, a reminder from Russia that it can strike anywhere in Ukraine. This is the damage after Russian missiles hit residential buildings in the capital of Kyiv. CNN has also learned an American citizen was killed fighting alongside Ukrainian forces this week. Family members say 22-year-old Willie Joseph Cancel, a former U.S. Marine, was working with a private military contracting firm when he was killed on Monday. Cancel leaving behind a wife and a seven-month-old baby. U.S. intelligence shows Russian forces who were plagued by problems in the early weeks of the invasion are now regrettably beginning to fix some of those issues. CNN's Jim Shudo starts off our coverage today from Lviv with a closer look at the Russian advance. Hundreds of civilians, including children, still trapped in a Mariupol steel plant today after Russia blocked Ukraine's latest attempt to rescue them. The plant is the last Ukrainian military holdout in the embattled city, and an official says that Russians have closed off an area near the complex for now. There is lack of everything, lack of water, food, uh, lack of medicine, lack of any social help, so they need to be humanitarily evacuated as soon as possible. Maripol's mayor claims more than 400 people were injured in a bombing Wednesday night that hit a makeshift military hospital inside the complex. A military commander inside the plant spoke with CNN. The situation is critical. It is beyond a humanitarian catastrophe. We cannot tell you for sure how long we can hold on for. That all depends on the enemy movements and also on luck. Humanitarian corridors from Mariupol were one of the items UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres lobbied for in his visits with Presidents Putin and Zelensky this week. But while he was meeting with Zelensky Thursday in Kyiv, several Russian missiles struck. The attack shattered the relative calm in the capital. One blast killed a Ukrainian journalist in her apartment. Ukraine's foreign minister called it, quote, a heinous act of barbarism. Russians are now making incremental progress in eastern Ukraine. This video shows extensive shelling of an important railway hub and supply line for Ukrainian troops. A key railroad bridge destroyed as well. 
U.S. intelligence sees Russia making improvements to fix some of the problems that plagued the military in the early weeks of the invasion. They are trying very hard to overcome the challenges they had in the north uh, by making sure logistics and sustainment can keep up with the movement of troops. But the Ukrainians are fighting back hard and making it hard for them to make any progress. A fuel depot was attacked overnight in the Donetsk region controlled by Russian-backed forces. And Ukrainian officials say a town in the northeast near Kharkiv has been recaptured. All of this as we learn of an American casualty here. Former U.S. Marine Willie Joseph Kensell from Tennessee was fighting alongside Ukrainian forces. He was working for a private military contracting company. His family says he wanted to go help the people of Ukraine. The 22-year-old leaves behind a seven-month-old baby and his wife. Jim Shudo, CNN, Lviv, Ukraine. And our thanks to Jim Shudo for that reporting. White House officials are now bracing for a potential showdown at the G20 summit now that Russia's Vladimir Putin has accepted host country Indonesia's invitation to attend. President Biden has previously said he thinks Russia should be kicked out of the G20. And administration officials have recently walked out of G20 events where Russian delegates were present. CNN's MJ Lee is live for us at the White House right now. MJ, uh, is it possible that President Biden boycotts the G20 summit altogether? Jake, we just don't know yet, but certainly this is a big uh, diplomatic complication uh, because, as you said, the president himself uh, has previously said that he believes uh, Russia should be kicked out of the G20 uh, summit and that he also believes uh, that it just wouldn't be constructive for them to be a part of this group. Now, just moments ago, I asked uh, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki about the news that Russia has confirmed that it is going to be attending the summit. And I also asked her whether there is anything that could happen between now and six months from now when this summit is set to happen that would make the U.S. feel like it might be productive for Russia to be a part of those meetings. This is what she said. We've conveyed our view that we don't think they should be a part of it publicly and privately as well. There's a lot that could happen between now and then, but we certainly haven't seen an indication to date of of Russia's plan to participate in uh, diplomatic talks constructively. And for now, it is just unlikely uh, that Russia is going to be kicked out of the G20 uh, because not every member country agrees with the U.S. that this should happen. Uh, China, of course, being an important one that has spoken out uh, to say they do not believe that Russia should be kicked out. There's also the question of Indonesia, which is the host country uh, for the upcoming G20 summit. Uh, You know, Jen Psaki interestingly said in her answer to me uh, that they believe that Indonesia, uh, you know, extended the invitation to Russia before the invasion began. Uh, But if you listen uh, to what the Indonesian president said, he said Indonesia wants to unite the G20. Don't let there be a split. So this certainly doesn't sound like a host country that is eager to see Russia kicked out uh, of the summit. And MJ, uh, President Biden just addressed the the U.S. citizen, the former Marine killed fighting in Ukraine. What, What did he say? Yeah, he was answering uh, some shouted questions from reporters about this American that was killed. And he said it's very sad. He left a little baby behind. Uh, Of course, he is talking about Willie Joseph Cancel, a 22 year old American citizen uh, and a former Marine veteran who was killed 
fighting alongside the Ukrainians. He was killed this week. Uh, according to his family, he had been working with a private military contracting company. And we had also asked Jen Psaki about this, the White House spokeswoman. And she said that she was offering her condolences to uh, his family. But she also had a very stern message for any American that is thinking about heading over to Ukraine. She said nothing has changed in terms of the warning to every American that might want to uh, travel over there, that they really should not do that because it is a war zone and it is very, very dangerous. Jake. MJ Lee at the White House for us. Thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss is Vadim Kristaiko. He's Ukraine's ambassador to the United Kingdom. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, thanks for joining us. What's your reaction to hearing that Putin has accepted this invitation from Indonesia to the upcoming G20 summit? Hello. Thank you for having me. First, uh, I believe that Putin should be actually kicked out of all the organizations, all of the organizations which are bringing people around the tables to talk about something which have to unite us, can't have the dictator who is killing his neighbor for, I don't know, sometimes even economical things like he's stealing water now for, from the, for the Crimea. So I believe that Indonesians have to reconsider and instead of it, invite President Zelensky to address all the G20 members. Hmm. Your, your president, uh, Vladimir Zelensky, said he was grateful uh, for an invitation to the same summit, uh, but he didn't specify whether he plans to go. Uh, is he going to go? I don't believe that he can come and, and even be in video when President Putin is around. I don't think that we will be able to do it. But again, I will leave it with President Zelensky. This is still a very good chance to reach out to those nations who still do not understand the tragedy which is unfolding in our part and still try to understand and find some excuses for what Putin is doing. Some of these nations are very wealthy nations and leading this planet among the 20th most wealthiest nations. We have to be able to reach out to them. As you know, the Russians are demanding that those purchasing fuel from their country have to pay in rubles. Uh, today, the prime minister of the Czech Republic said uh, that his country is not going to agree to what he called, quote, Russian blackmail. They're not going to pay for Russian gas in rubles. But on the other hand, Hungary's foreign minister said they are going to agree to the Russian terms because they depend so much on Russian gas. Isn't it true that this war likely will not end until Europeans stop giving Putin money for Russian fuel, no matter what currency? There are two major sources of, of Russians' incomes uh, as a state. And one is oil and gas, something we have to do because we are fueling his military machine. Second, actually, the third of everything the military are spending is coming from the taxes of Western and Eastern companies are working right now in Russian Federation. So we also have to get them out of the nation because each and every dollar they are earning and paying as a tax is going to be turned into bullet shooting at Ukrainians. Earlier this week, you warned that Russia is one step away from deploying nuclear weapons to Crimea. That's, of course, the area uh, in the south that it annexed illegally from Ukraine in 2014. Why do you believe this? Do you have evidence of it? And, and what will Ukraine do if it happens? Over the last eight years, we were observing the activities around the old Soviet installations, which used to hold nuclear weapons aimed at the West at that time. And this renewed activity is very suspicious. We don't have, uh, still do not have evidence that they already brought the nuclear devices, but the renovations are going right now and they can be even observed from the satellites. 
So this is not a big news what I told the intelligence intelligence all over the world already knowing that Russians are preparing something in this all Soviet nuclear installations. The U.S. Congress is now considering whether to approve $33 billion in additional aid to Ukraine that President Biden has requested. This would include military and security assistance, economic aid, humanitarian aid. Will this be enough uh, to help Ukraine defeat Russia? Finally, we see that United States is, is getting there and, and it's meaning business. The, this quite a considerable, like a huge sum of money will not only help us to, to acquire the necessary equipment, but it will also help somebody who doesn't have a strong spine, some of the nations around the globe, to finally come up with their share of the burden and, you know, open up their, sometimes even the wallets, to help Ukraine and sometimes to allow their depots to be open and start sending us very needed equipment right now. I believe that this, this you know, last move, and on top of what's been already done by UK and some of the NATO allies, this is actually a key moment which we were waiting for two months and finally it's here. Tell me three countries that you think need to be doing more. I can tell you those countries who are doing well, but I also know that, for example, we started with Germany in just they promised to send a couple of helmets. This is ridiculous. Now they're, they're considering to send artillery, something we need right away, right now. We also need, on top of it, we need anti-air, anti-sea, something which will allow us to hit more ships. And there are a couple of nations in the world which actually have these technologies, especially those ones who have a bigger fleets. And again, the anti-air is something which will allow us to wipe out the planes from our skies. These are three priorities we have, and there are nations who have this equipment. All right, Ambassador Vadim Pristaiko, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time today. Coming up next, CNN on the ground, where missile strikes hit in Kyiv. The one thing a mother says saved her life when shelling hit her apartment, plus paying a price. The American workers now taking a hit as the pandemic shifts and generosity fades. Stay with us. And we're back with our world lead. Ukrainians want to go back home, Ukrainian refugees, but authorities in Kyiv say it is not yet safe. And they've issued a warning today to stay away. And those who are there have been told to stop driving their cars to preserve gas for military use, as CNN's Matt Rivers reports. Despite the warning, some Kyiv residents did start returning home only to become victims of Russia's latest callous and bloody attack. It had been weeks of relative quiet in Kyiv, but a couple of bangs and a plume of black smoke quickly changed that. Ukraine and Russia both confirming cruise missiles were fired into a central district of Kyiv on Thursday evening, mere miles away from where the UN Secretary General had just wrapped up a meeting with President Zelensky. Rescuers worked through the night, and in the morning, a clearer picture emerged about what happened with this apartment complex shredded by shrapnel, leaving those in the neighborhood shaken. This wall saved my life, she says, otherwise it would have been the end. There was a lot of fire, I could see everything was burning. I was so scared, it was horror. She says she only survived because she wasn't sitting next to the window. Her son Alexei's hands bloodied. He says a clap and a blast, then panic, that's it. I didn't see it until later I saw my hand was covered in blood. Mother and son survived while others affected by the strike did not. 54-year-old Vera Hirich, a Ukrainian journalist, lived here, having just returned to her home about a week ago. 
No one had heard from her all night, so friends kept trying to call her. Her ringing cell phone led rescuers to her body this morning. I have no words, says this friend, no tears left. I have no energy to cry. Only a few days ago, she was asking how she could help me because my house burned down and now no one can help her. Russia's Ministry of Defense says they were aiming for a factory right nearby here that is one of Ukraine's top producers of air-to-air guided missiles as well as aircraft parts. We can't show you that factory due to Ukrainian law. The factory was damaged in the strike, but so was that apartment complex just behind me. Yet another example of Russia targeting places with supposed military relevance, but killing ordinary civilians in the process. Vera's body was taken out of the building midday on Friday. The victim of an attack, President Zelensky said, proves, quote, that one cannot relax yet. One cannot think that the war is over. We still need to fight. And Jake, according to the Zelensky administration, uh, Vera is the 23rd member of the media to die covering this war. Meanwhile, as people continue to come home here to Kiev, and we have seen that in our reporting over the last week or so, you have to wonder if these latest missile strikes will give people pause as they begin to do that more and more. Jake. Matt Rivers reporting live for us from Kiev. Thank you so much. We turn now to Ukraine's neighbor to the southwest, Moldova. This week, the breakaway territory in Moldova, known as Transnistria, was hit with a series of unexplained explosions. Russia blames Ukraine, and the Ukrainian government claims this is a Moscow-driven false flag operation. For decades, this region has been home to thousands of Russian forces, leaving the 500,000 people who live in the breakaway territory in limbo, locked in a Soviet-era land dispute. Let's bring in CNN's Randy Kay, who went to the contested area today. And Randy, what did you see? And explain why this territory is so significant. Well, Jake, we wanted to see how close we could get to Transnistria. It's about a 45-minute drive from the capital of Moldova, Chisinau, where we are. Uh, so we wanted to see just how to get there. And uh, this is that breakaway republic, as you mentioned. It sits on the border between Moldova uh, and Ukraine. And that shared border is about 250 miles long. Transnistria uh, is about the size of Rhode Island. So we did get close. Uh, we were able to reach uh, one of the bridges. And this is this bridge that leads to uh, Dubasari in Transnistria. Um, but as soon as we got Got there, we saw there was these armed Russian troops. There was an armed uh, Russian vehicle. Uh, so we quickly turned around and, and just went a little bit down the road. But they kept their eyes on us. They continued to watch us through binoculars. We have some video of that. Uh, they were passing the binoculars back and forth, talking amongst themselves as they were looking at us. Uh, and they also changed position on the bridge while we were there. When we first arrived, they were uh, actually there was one uh, member of the troops that was on the Moldova side. And while we were there, they all moved on to the bridge. Unclear why they did that, but they're actually five bridges that connect Moldova to Transnistria, this breakaway region. And that is so unnerving, Jake, for so many people, certainly here uh, in the capital, because it is so close. They're very concerned that Transnistria and Moldova will be next on Putin's list. Randy, what do we know about the explosions and the, the Moldovan government's response? 
There were this series of explosions uh, that you mentioned earlier this week. One was at the uh, built near the building for Ministry of State Security. Another one uh, damaged two radio towers. Of course, uh, Russia blames Ukraine. Ukraine is blaming Russia. The Ukrainian defense minister is saying uh, that these was this was a planned provocation by Russia's uh, secret services. But what's concerning here and why this matters is because there is fear that Transnistria could be used uh, for Putin to expand his war. If he gets through into Transnistria, that would then give him access possibly to Moldova and even uh, a way to push even further east. Uh, and as you know, this Russian commander came out saying that they would like to have uh, full control. Russia would like to have full control of southern Ukraine. And of course, if that happens, they could build this land. They could have this land corridor, which would stretch to uh, Transnistria. So certainly a lot of concern. There are 1,500 Russian troops in Transnistria, even though Russia says that those are just peacekeeping troops. But that hasn't stopped the president of Moldova here uh, just this week, uh, voicing her concerns, saying that she thinks the attacks uh, recently in Transnistria are just a way for Russia to escalate uh, the tensions. And here's more of what she said. We condemn any provocations or attempts to involve Moldova in actions that could threaten the country's peace. And it is worth noting, Jake, that Moldova is not part of NATO. It is not part of the European Union. It does consider itself neutral, Jake. All right, Randy Kay reporting for us from Moldova. Thank you so much. Coming up next, the parents of Trevor Reed. Join me after the veteran U.S. Marine finally, finally returned home after nearly three years detained in Russia. Stay with us. In our world lead, Trevor Reed, the former U.S. Marine detained in Russia since 2019, is back on American soil. New photos show Trevor's reunion with his family at a Texas Air Force base yesterday morning. Trevor's release comes after months of intense negotiations by Biden administration officials and amid growing concerns about his health as he remained in Russian captivity. And Trevor's parents, Joey and Paula, along with his sister, Taylor Reed, joining us now to tell us what it was like to greet Trevor for the first time after his release. Paula, I've never seen you smile before. It's so good to see you smiling. It was good to hear you laughing uh, before we started taping. Um, so he's recovering in a medical facility. You were able to meet with him for a few hours yesterday. Uh, uh, and, and you previously had expressed concerns about his likely exposure to uh, tuberculosis and lingering effects of covid I know you're very, very happy. How is he doing? Uh, he seems to be doing a little bit better every day. I think he's, uh, you know, settling in. And um, we had a great time visiting with him yesterday. And towards the end of the visit, he was more like himself, telling us stories, making us laugh. He's, uh, he's kind of a little bit of a cut up. And so it was great to see his old personality coming back. And, and Joey, I mean... It's been a long, long journey, but it's good to see a, a, a smile underneath that mustache. How does it feel to have him back home in the U.S.? Hard to describe, Jake. <laughs> it's wonderful. And Taylor, what's it like to have your brother back and to know that he's safe? It's, it's outstanding. It still feels a little surreal at the moment, but it's, we, we couldn't be happier. So, Paula, the State Department obviously played a very important role in securing Trevor's release, and you just had a virtual meeting with Secretary of State Antony Blinken. What can you tell us about the meeting? Uh, he just wanted to uh, welcome, uh, congratulate us and tell us that, you know, it was mostly uh, because of mine and Joey's efforts to bring Trevor home. Although, like I said, we, we know that isn't true. We know that the government's been working on it for a while. and They worked hard, and we know that Governor Richardson had a, a play in that. There's so many people that worked on it besides just Joey and I. So 
Um, we appreciated his call, and we were thankful that he let us know that he's working on bringing others home still. So They obviously did uh, some important work, but do not discount how hard you guys worked, and, and Jonathan Franks too, to, to get the story front and center so it couldn't be ignored. Joey, I know it's very important to your son and to you and, and the rest of your family uh, to also p- talk about Americans Paul Whelan and Brittany Griner, who remain imprisoned in Russia. And, and you said, in fact, that one of the first things Trevor brought up in your very first conversation with him was that others are still there and they need to be freed as well. What do you want to tell their family? And, and tell us more about what Trevor told you about them. Well, when we, f- we first got to uh, sit down with him yesterday in the evening, and uh, we were actually able to stay about two hours before they had to start running some more tests. But uh, we asked him how he was doing, and, and he said, well, I'm not doing too well. And we, were, you know, we immediately became concerned, and, he, and, he sa- and we said, so what, what, physically? And he said, no. And we said, what? And he said, Paul Whelan. And uh, it may... You might... Okay, he, he said, I feel horrible about being home and not having Paul here. He said, I don't understand why I'm here and Paul's not. And he said, and I, I, I'm not doing well now, but as soon as I get better, I'm going to work on bringing Paul home. He asked the Russians, on, he asked the FSB on his plane while they were waiting for the American plane to arrive. He said, where's, where's the other Americans? And they said, it's only you. And uh, I think he was, he was very surprised. And we, we had always been concerned that he might, you know, uh, if this were to ever occur, uh, a single transaction, that he might fight it, uh, you know, not wanting to leave a fellow Marine behind. And, uh, of course, he doesn't have any choice. I mean, if the Russians, you know, you know push you out of a plane, then you, there's no, you don't have much choice. But uh, anyway, he's real concerned about it. And, uh, and the doctors and the State Department, you know, they're, they're talking about it with him and, and letting him know what he can do to help Paul and the other Americans. And while we're on that subject... Um, uh, Miss Greiner, uh, we saw a wonderful note from from her wife uh, on Instagram. A beautiful letter, and our heart, our hearts. <laughs> yeah, our hearts go out to you. We we appreciate the graciousness of her statement, and our hearts go out to her. And before I forget, Jake, um, there's a, a group called uh, uh, Family uh, uh, Families of American Hostages and Wrongful Detainees. It's a it's a new group of it's just the families themselves. They're going to have a protest in front of the White House on uh, May 4th and, uh, you know, to just uh, build on what we've been doing. And, and one of our family members will be there also uh, to, uh, you know, make sure that the administration keeps up what they've done, which, uh, again, that's a whole other subject about how great uh, the president is and, and the staff to make this happen. But we wanted to, to let people know that that's coming and that you're going to learn about a lot more of the families that are out there. And there's multiple options that the government could use to bring them home. Taylor, before we go, um, I know you worked hard. Your parents worked so hard lobbying people, making media appearances, as did you. Um, what, what else do you want the American people to know about this, this good moment, this nice moment, this wonderful moment? We don't get a lot of them these days, it feels like. No, for, for sure. Um, well, the thing that we've been hearing the most is, like, I can't imagine what your family's been through. I can't imagine what your family's been through. And unfortunately, there are a great deal of families that can imagine exactly what we've been through because they're still going through it themselves. And so we hope that our story can offer them some hope. And we also want to let them know that we're not going to stop fighting for their loved ones to be returned as well. Let us, let us hope uh, that the story of Trevor is a story of hope 
if, it, if it can happen to him, it can happen to Brittany, it can happen to, to Paul and, and others. And it is such a, it is such a testament to your great character, uh, Joey, Paula, and Taylor, uh, that you're talking about these other people at this moment of, of relief and happiness for your family. Thank you so much, as always, and I hope to see you soon. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Jake. Jake. You're, you're wonderful. Coming up next, a CNN exclusive, the 80-plus text messages that reveal the advice Trump's White House shared with a Fox host after the 2020 election. In our politics lead, new details about text messages between then-Trump White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and Fox host Sean Hannity between Election Day 2020 and President Biden's inauguration, offering A real-time view into the role Hannity has played as a sort of shadow White House chief of staff, as Trump aides themselves would call it. CNN special correspondent Jamie Gangel joins us now with her exclusive reporting. So, Jamie, how how often were these two in contact, and what was the nature of the contact? So, they're in contact a lot. Uh, Sean Hannity was a frequent texter. There are more than 82 messages. Those are the ones we can see. Some things may have been deleted or redacted. To your point, uh, Sean Hannity is not a normal journalist. He is. He, doesn't, uh, he says he's not a journalist. He says he's not. He's a host. He's an entertainer. He is also a good friend of Donald Trump's. We all remember when Trump called him up on stage during a campaign rally. So to your point, this is a peek behind the scenes at two men very close to Donald Trump Uh, And it shows the evolution of their conversation from Election Day when uh, Sean Hannity says to Meadows, you know, where do you need get out the boat? And Meadows says, North Carolina, here, there. Hannity says, yes, sir. That's Election Day. A month. And just just not to put too fine a point on that's not a normal conversation. That is not a normal conversation. Between somebody on TV and 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 a White House chief of staff. A month later, December 5th, they are talking about life after Trump. So even though everything's going on with Rudy and stop the steal and election, these two men are talking about possibly working together. So here you go. Quote, Sean Hannity. If this doesn't end the way we want, you, me, and Jay are doing three things together. Jay Sekulow, the attorney? We believe it's Jay Sekulow. One, directing legal strategies versus Biden. Two, North Carolina real estate. Three, other business. I talked to Rudy. Thanks for helping. There's another exchange where Hannity suggests to Meadows that he should come work for Fox after the Trump administration. In other words, they know that this is over. They know that the election has... Uh, Talking about going into business together, into business deals together, that's highly unethical and, and odd. Um, publicly, even though they're having these conversations behind the scenes, that we're going to do this real estate venture in North Carolina, this other business deal with Rudy, blah, 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 they're still publicly promoting the big lie, right? They, they are, but let's just talk about what happens over the month of December. You see in the text, Sean Hannity is getting worried. He says he's worried that White House counsel might resign in protest. He's worried about January 6th coming up. And he says, uh, quote, on December 22nd, 
Hey, my friend, how are you doing? Meadows, fighting like crazy, went to Cobb County to review process. Very tough days, but I will keep fighting. Here's the thing. Sean Hannity, you fighting is fine. The effing lunatics is not fine. They are not helping him. I'm fed up with those people. Who specifically are the effing lunatics? Do we know? I mean, we can assume it's possibly like the Sidney Powells of the world, the people really talking about releasing the Kraken. But, but We don't know from here, but we do know that on January 6th, he reaches out again and tries to get Meadows to tell Trump to tell the people to leave. Huh. Interesting. So that's what he was saying behind the scenes. Behind the scenes. He never publicly called them effing no. lunatics. No. Jamie Gengal, thank you so much. Sure. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the people who have strong proof Americans are nowhere near as generous now as they were in the early days of the pandemic, at least when it comes to the service industry. Stay with us. In our money, Lee, and Americans are making more and spending more as a key inflation measure hits a 40-year high. In March, American incomes rose by just over $107 billion, while consumer spending increased by $185 billion over the prior month. That's according to new data released today from the Commerce Department. CNN's Tom Foreman looks at one part of the service economy which underwent massive upheaval during the pandemic that's tripping up consumers as things return to normal. At Stellina's Pizzeria in D.C., the food has been hot and the tips steady throughout the pandemic. Have the tips been good during the pandemic? Oh, for sure. But now the staff, suppliers, customers, everyone is facing a tipping point. And service workers in some places are paying the price. Just ask Isabella Sarmiento, the operations manager. Tipping has grown a lot more complicated. It has. You are not wrong. The pandemic, by many accounts, pushed tips to new prominence in home deliveries, at takeout stands, food trucks, and in ride-sharing services far beyond the spots where many consumers were used to seeing them. At the New York Times, food writer Christina Morales says that's left a lot of folks wondering where to tip, when, and how much. What's driving really a lot of this anxiety and confusion is the fact that these changes in tipping have happened so fast. She says even the social norms for tipping have become unsettled. Noting one company which tracks credit card transactions found tips rose as the pandemic began, then leveled off and now are falling amid the confusion and inflation. So should you tip at a coffee stand, a supermarket, a convenience store? I'm a good tipper. Some customers say it's simple. If someone helps you tip, if you help yourself. I was at the airport and I grabbed a bottle of water from like a convenience store and it asked me for a tip. And I was like, "Ah, that's not happening. To make it all clearer, Stellina's now puts a 20% service charge on your bill. That is the tip, unless you want to add a little more. For me, I personally uh, evaluate the service that I'm receiving. And I also take into account the person behind the counter and I say, you know, how much could they possibly be making? Just to understand, like, I think we're all just trying to do what's best for the people around us. That's a good tip. Thanks. (laughs) Inflation is just complicating this so much more, Jake. The bottom line is you have people on one side of the equation watching every dollar because gas costs more, food costs more, everything costs more. And on the other side, people are relying on those dollars. And it really has created a whole lot of little conflicts throughout the day with people saying, 
How much is the right amount? How much is too little? How much is too much when every dollar counts? What do you do? What do I do? I tip overly. I, I'm a generous tipper in almost every circumstance simply because I figure the people who need the money need the money. But I'm doing well. I'm not somebody who's right up against the wall where I might feel like I can't afford that kind of thing. What I don't do is something that some delivery people see, which is called tip baiting, where you promise somebody a good tip if they hustle your order out and then stiff them or cut And then delete it on the app. That's, which is completely... That's okay. hideous. Yeah, All right, terribly. Tom Foreman. Well, I follow your lead, okay. as always. Good. Stanley Tucci is exploring the service industry and the floating city of Venice. The adventure is for season two of his new series, San- Stanley Tucci Searching for Italy. Here's a little preview. And these are cicchetti, a traditional Venetian snack. Questo è lardo, no? Questo è un lardo pancettato, sì. Bianco o rosso? Bianco. It's only 8.30, but a Venetian breakfast is eaten standing up, washed down with a glass of wine known as an ombra, or shadow. You can catch the series premiere of season two of Stanley Tucci Searching for Italy. That's this Sunday night at 9 o'clock Eastern, only here on CNN. Coming up, a reporter cut off while trying to get answers from the Los Angeles County Sheriff. Maybe you need to start clarifying exactly what you did with this and when did you, who did you get it from and when did you get it? So that's a question for you to answer. So with that, we're not going to take a question from you. Anybody else has a question? Sheriff, uh, Sheriff, Yeah, that's not how it works, Sheriff. The controversial video uncovered by that reporter cut off straight ahead. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, President Biden's midterm attack plan, how his new rhetoric may go against the campaign message of unity and bipartisanship that got him elected in 2020. Plus, aggressive moves to ban abortion in Republican-controlled states seemingly looking to Supreme Court signals of a post-Roe v. Wade America. And leading this hour, supply lines hit and a rail hub struck. As U.S. officials say Russia is intensifying its attacks on parts of Ukraine, and having some success. CNN's Sam Kiley joins us now live from Kramatorsk, Ukraine. And Sam, we are seeing video today, not far from where you are, of an important Ukrainian rail hub and supply line being shelled by the Russians. What are the Russians seemingly trying to do here? Well, I think they're trying to do two things there. They're, they're attacking an area called, in, a, in a village called Liman, where the Ukrainians say they are still holding on in spite of a very deliberate uh, bombardment. Um, almost all civilians have left that, left that area and indeed the villages nearby, just handfuls left behind. But there is a large power plant there at the end of a railway system that is still functioning. It's a coal-fired power plant and it needs coal deliveries to continue to function. The extent to which this region relies on that power plant is unclear because there are others in the region, but clearly it's a major strategic prize for the Russians. On top of that, uh, they want to be able to prevent the movement of equipment that is being promised and indeed delivered from NATO and from uh, the United States and other NATO countries coming to this arguably the most important battlefront in terms of the Ukrainian defense against the Russian invaders. So they're going after those very important railway lines with these bombardments. I have to say on top of that though, the railway bridge that links uh, Liman to Slavyansk, which is on the other side 
of the Donetsk River uh, was also blown today. It's not clear, though, Jake, whether it was the Ukrainians or the Russians that blew it, because we do know that the Ukrainians uh, do have a tactic of blowing bridges in order to slow uh, Russian advances, and they are going to use, in all probability, the Donetsk River as a line of defence if it comes to that. But there have been very substantial troop movements among the Ukrainians uh, on the Ukrainian side throughout this region uh, over the last 24 hours, and clearly an effort at least at reinforcement is underway. The, a lot of movement of troops, a lot of concentration of Ukrainian troops, arguably exactly, of course, what the Russians want to do, because uh, they're probably going to try and drive south uh, from uh, the area that you referred to there, close to Slavyansk and a little bit further west, the town of Izium, and try and uh, cut off this region. Sam, uh, the Russians have been heavily bombing along the, quote, entire line of contact in the Donbass region uh, of southeastern Ukraine. Is it clear who has the upper hand on that battlefront? No, I think that's an absolutely key question. Who is going to get the upper hand here, Jake? The troop numbers, clearly the Russians have more. In terms of sophistication of equipment, the Ukrainians will increasingly have the edge. Uh, and it is also clear from the use of caliber missiles that we've seen recently fired into uh, what believed to be caliber cruise missiles into Kiev that they're not that accurate. Some of their bombing is precision. Some of it is using dumb bombs, particularly around Mar Mariupol. And so as a consequence of this, uh, there is a very finely balanced uh, maneuver war going on with a lot of artillery duels going on as as I think both sides are trying to probe uh, weaknesses. But ultimately, the expectation is there is going to be a substantial uh, attack coming in from uh, Russia over the next week or so. Sam, we, we've heard reports of Russian soldiers stealing wheat from villagers. Do we, do we know why? Well, this is uh, from uh, reportedly from Melitopol in the south. Uh, it is a, frankly, a typical act that would be very familiar indeed to Ukrainians echoing uh, the what's called the Red Famine uh, of 1932, 1933, when the forcible expropriation of of grain from Ukraine by Russia resulted in the deaths of uh, some five million Ukrainians over the space of about a year and a half. Uh, it is something that the Russians are anticipated to have done. They've looted uh, with gusto elsewhere in areas that they've captured. And they've been shipping this Ukraine into Crimea, which is parched, uh, doesn't have uh, easy supply lines uh, into Russia, and it doesn't come as any great surprise to Ukrainians. But the images of those trucks moving from a territory that the Russians have captured with the Z symbol painted on them uh, has resonated right across the country and, in fact, will probably increase the steeliness of Ukraine's defense. They do not want to see another famine here. Sam Kiley reporting for us live from Kramatorsk, Ukraine. Thank you so much. The Avovstal steel complex in Mariupol is under relentless shelling and ground attacks from the Russians. The mayor of Mariupol says hundreds of people are wounded after Russian bombs hit a makeshift hospital facility within the complex. As CNN's Scott McLean reports for us now, there are so many civilians still trapped inside the plant that one local official says only a miracle can help them. These are Russian troops making a break for cover in the streets near the Azovstal steel plant in Mariupol. One of them is shot along the way. His fellow soldier attempts to pull him to safety amidst heavy fire. One Ukrainian deputy commander says that Russia is not only bombarding the plant from the sky, but now also attacking from the ground. 
As of today, there have been attempts to storm the territory of Azovstal. This is infantry, this is enemy military equipment. But those attempts have been beaten off as of this hour. Sviatoslav Palomar, deputy commander of the Azov Regiment, which is leading the fight from the plant, says that recent bombing left some cellars and bunkers cut off by rubble. He's not sure if there are survivors trapped inside. He says bombing also hit a field hospital, bringing the number of wounded soldiers to more than 500. The city mayor puts the number of injured at more than 600. How many do you think will survive the next day or two? I'm not going to say how long we could be here, but I'm going to say that we're doing everything we can to stabilize them. With the soldiers in the plant are hundreds of civilians, mostly elderly women and children, they say as young as four months old. Ukrainian officials say are also running low on food and water. Thursday, the U.N. Secretary General arrived in Kyiv determined to broker a deal to safely evacuate civilians from the plant after securing an agreement in principle from Vladimir Putin in Moscow. Friday morning, Zelensky's office announced an operation to evacuate civilians was planned for Friday, but no other details. Palomar said a convoy was en route but had yet to arrive. He is also hoping for a deal to allow soldiers to get out, So perhaps it's a long shot. Would you rather die fighting than surrender yourself to the Russians? We are not considering the terms of surrender. We are waiting only for guarantees of exit from the territory of the plant. That is, if there is no choice but captivity, we will not surrender. Petro Andrushenko, an advisor to the mayor of Mariupol, says getting soldiers evacuated safely would take an international intervention or a divine one. I really want something, something like miracle. Look like a Pope have to sit to the main bus from Zaporizhia and driving to Azostil, take uh, to the bus our soldiers and get back. You don't think that it makes sense for the soldiers at the steel plant just to surrender themselves to the Russians? It might be, that might be the best thing to do. Yeah. And Mariupol officials say that they have discovered three mass graves outside the city where the Russian soldiers have been enlisting local civilians to help them dig in exchange for food. Now, the mayor's advisor, who you saw there, says that they've been in touch with some of those diggers who say that they usually dig in about groups of 40. The reward is, per person, two carrots and six strands of pasta, while the entire group of 40 has to share just one loaf of bread and about a gallon and a half of water. Jake? Scott McLean reporting from Lviv for us. Thank you so much. The emotional moment at the Pentagon today when spokesman John Kirby talked about the nerve of Vladimir Putin and his actions in this war. Plus, the provocative political ad from the candidate best known as Dr. Oz, how he's taking aim at anyone questioning his position on guns. Stay with us. We're back with our world lead in a possible Biden-Putin showdown brewing now that Russia's Vladimir Putin has accepted host country Indonesia's invitation to attend the upcoming G20 summit. President Biden has previously said he thinks Russia should be kicked out of the group. CNN's MJ Lee is live at the White House. And MJ, you asked Press Secretary Jen Psaki this afternoon about Putin's plans to attend the summit. What did she have to say? 
Yeah, you know, there's no question that the confirmation that Putin is now going to be attending this G20 summit in November has created a diplomatic headache uh, for the White House. Of course, the context here is that President Biden has made clear that he believes Russia should be kicked out of the G, uh, G20. And when I asked White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki about this just moments ago, I asked her for reaction and I also asked her, is there anything that could happen between now and six months from now when that summit is set to take place that could make the U.S. reassess this idea of kicking Russia out? And she basically said that she has made clear, the U.S. has made clear, both in private and in public, that they don't support Russia attending the summit and being a part of the G20 altogether. She also said that there are no indications right now that Russia and Vladimir Putin is serious about diplomatic talks. Now, it is unlikely, I should note, uh, at this moment in time that Russia would be kicked out of the G20, uh, namely because China has been so vocal in saying that they don't support this. And then there's also the question of the host country, Indonesia. you know, Saki said in her briefing that they believe that Indonesia extended this invitation to Russia before the invasion began. But this is what the Indonesian president said. They said Indonesia wants to unite the G20. Don't let there be a split. So this certainly doesn't sound like a host country that would be eager to kick Russia out of the G20. Jake. MJ, there was an emotional moment today at the Pentagon when the spokesman, uh, Rear Admiral John Kirby, Uh, was talking about the war, specifically about Putin's depravity. Tell us about that. Yeah, this this was a striking moment uh, from the briefing today. John Kirby was talking about the atrocities that we're seeing uh, coming out of Ukraine, the images that we are seeing of civilian deaths. Uh, Let me just play that sound for you and we can talk coming out of it. It's difficult to look at the It's difficult to look at some of the images and imagine that any well-thinking, serious, mature leader would do that. So I can't talk to his psychology, but uh, I think we can all speak to his depravity. Look, obviously, John Kirby is a professional spokesperson. He does this day in and day out. Uh, So just kind of striking to see uh, somebody who talks about these issues uh, all the time to reporters getting so uh, choked up, just talking about these horrific images that have come out of Ukraine. And I should note, just uh, speaking to you from here, the White House, uh, this is something that we've seen uh, reflected from the president himself, too. Uh, There have been moments when he has spoken about some of these issues and has really spoken uh, with emotions behind uh, his words. And the White House officials close to him have talked about this as well, that, you know, sometimes when he is making these comments that are clearly sort of off the cuff and may not necessarily uh, reflect uh, sort of the formal uh, U.S. diplomatic talking points, that that often is because he, too, is sort of emotionally moved by uh, just these horrific, the nature uh, of the images that we are coming out of Ukraine. So just another reminder or not that we needed one, uh, that these images are just so haunting, so horrific, and there really is a no rationale for Vladimir Putin and his continued unprovoked attacks across Ukraine, Jake. Yeah, the slaughter of civilians is tough. The images that we bring you on CNN and other media organizations bring you, uh, people at home I'm talking to, uh, are rough and upsetting. And then there are the ones that we see but we don't bring you, and those are probably the ones that Admiral Kirby and President Biden and others respond to when they get emotional. MJ Lee at the White House for us. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. A U.S. citizen 
was killed fighting alongside Ukrainian forces this week. Family members say the 22-year-old Willie Joseph Cancel, a former U.S. Marine from Tennessee, was working with a private military contracting company when he was killed on Monday. Cancel's mother says the men fighting alongside her son have not been able to retrieve his body. She tells CNN this about why he went to Ukraine to fight, quote, he wanted to go over because he believed in what Ukraine was fighting for, and he wanted to be a part of it to contain it there so it didn't come here, and that maybe our American soldiers wouldn't have to be involved in it, unquote. Cancel leaves behind a wife and a seven-month-old baby. May his memory be a blessing. Coming up, how an anticipated Supreme Court ruling might impact the flood of new abortion bans throughout the United States. Stay with us. In our politics lead, Republican-led state legislatures across the country are advancing new bills that would make abortion nearly illegal entirely. Oklahoma is the latest state passing a Texas-style bill that would ban abortions after six weeks before many women even know that they're pregnant. And like Texas, the law would also incentivize citizens to sue anyone who performs or helps someone get an abortion. Let's discuss this with Katie Watson. She's an attorney and associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Northwestern University. Uh, Professor Watson, so this Oklahoma bill will go into effect as soon as the governor signs it, which he is expected to do. Practically speaking, what will this mean for Oklahoma? So the Oklahoma bill is a copycat of the Texas six-week ban. And the immediate effect is that approximately 12,000 women a year will be displaced. And I think of these folks as medical refugees. In Texas, 45% of the patients who traveled to escape that unconstitutional ban went to Oklahoma. So the minute this takes effect... Oklahoma women, approximately 90% of them, would have to travel if they wanted an abortion. But in addition, we have the roughly 1,000 or so um, Texas patients who are moving as well. And so yearly, I estimate it's about 12,000 Texans and Oklahomans who will now have to travel for abortion care. Um, So it has a huge effect. It will be immediate. And if I may add, on Monday, the Oklahoma legislature is expected to pass a total abortion ban with this vigilante enforcement scheme. Um, That will be um, more quickly enjoined, I would imagine. Um, But they just can't stop in Oklahoma. So the the U.S. Supreme Court, Mm -hmm. in the next few weeks, we're expecting the court will rule uh, on the constitutionality of Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban What impact will that have on states, do you think? And and can you read the tea leaves as to how you think the court might rule? Well, there are two factors there. One is exactly, as you said, what the court rules there. It's possible that Justice Roberts could wrangle five conservatives into saying, we're upholding the core holding of Roe. Women have a constitutional right to abortion, but we're going to jettison the viability standards and states can decide when abortion is banned, as long as they give women some opportunity. They could also um, just uphold the Mississippi 15-week ban. Um, But those are like the, quote, good scenarios for uh, pro-choice advocates. It's also very likely that even if it's with a five-member majority, um, the conservatives 
absolutely just reverse row and it's a complete free for all in the states. Now, the second element is this vigilante enforcement mechanism, which is still extraordinary. And I just think we have to not forget that, that if Texas had said, oh, we're going to segregate the schools, but you can't sue us in that it's a violation of Brown versus Board because parents are the ones who get to enforce it. That part is so threatening to our democracy and our separation of powers and our judicial system. Um, the implications are much larger than with just abortion. So the people who are passing these laws, they, they obviously argue that they think abortion uh, is immoral uh, and, and, and more. Um, are they succeeding in eliminating abortion or are they just driving the women who want to get abortions to other states or to uh, illegal secret abortions? They're increasing the hardship. So I think we're about, after the Supreme Court ruling in um, Dobbs versus Jackson's Women's Health Organization, moving to a system of free states and forced motherhood states where women's personhood is not recognized and therefore women have to flee to get abortions or they try to order abortion pills off the internet or they try to self-induce in other more dangerous ways. So what we're seeing in Texas is that many who are seeking abortion are traveling or ordering pills from the internet and having a miscarriage, what looks like a miscarriage at home. And that will get harder because as Texas and states like it become more landlocked. So we know 59% of abortion patients are already mothers. And we know half live under the poverty line, which is about $13,000 for a single person. So imagine people in that category, say you live in Texas and you could make it to Oklahoma. That doesn't mean you can make it to Kansas or elsewhere. Um, and so as more states fall, as these dominoes fall, it gets harder and harder to travel. So it is true that these laws are simply forcing women to endure more shame, more expense, and it's pushing them to later gestational ages. So for those who say they find second trimester abortion more ethically problematic than first, they ought to be against these laws. It's pushing women to later gestation. Hmm. Katie Watson, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time as always. Turning to our national lead now, growing alarmed from press freedom advocates after Los Angeles County's powerful sheriff suggested a reporter was under criminal investigation for doing her job. L.A. County Sheriff Alex Villanueva attacked L.A. Times reporter Aileen Chekmedian on Tuesday after she published a series of stories, including one looking at a possible cover-up within his department. The L.A. Times accuses the sheriff of abusing his position in an attempt to intimidate their reporter. As CNN's Nick Watt reports now, Villanueva has a history of attracting controversy. An inmate gets punchy at a sheriff's department lockup. In this footage, recently obtained by the Los Angeles Times, you see a deputy's knee on the now handcuffed inmate's neck or head. This week, L.A. County Sheriff Alex Villanueva announced another investigation. Here are the three individuals that we want to know a lot about. An investigation into who leaked that video. He pointed at a picture of the L.A. Times reporter who broke the story. Is this Los Angeles Times reporter under investigation by the department? Well, the act is under investigation. All parties to the act are subjects of the investigation. It was 
you know, uncomfortable and bizarre and a little bit surreal to see my photo up there. It's obviously alarming, of course, when a powerful government official would do something like that. Raises the question, why? Well, this potentially excessive use of force by one of his deputies was kept from the public. The video only surfaced last month, but it happened more than a year ago, just as jury selection began in Minneapolis for the trial of Derek Chauvin, who murdered George Floyd with a knee on the neck. Sheriff Villanueva blocked and stalled an investigation, states one of the sheriff's underlings in a freshly filed claim to obstruct justice and avoid bad publicity for his re-election campaign. Well, the foundation of this entire lawsuit is false. Everything on this lawsuit is false. The scandal-prone Villanueva faces voters in June. Right now, questions over a helipad built by his home, apparently without permission, reports the LA Times, based on a department audit. Also, an investigation into alleged gang activity among his deputies. There's absolutely no actionable information on here for anybody, but it made for a good clickbait for the LA Times. On this incident, Villanueva claims he wasn't shown the video until eight months after it happened, acted swiftly, launched an investigation. He blames subordinates for any earlier lack of action. Yesterday, we heard for the first time an eyewitness who says that they were personally in the room and saw him watch the video five days after the incident happened. A high-ranking official. She says she didn't cover it up. Villanueva did and later tried to demote her. Villanueva is the most powerful sheriff in the land. Claims this is all a deep conspiracy against him. There was a lot of people working in concert and coordination. That includes the LA Times. That includes people that obviously want to defeat me electorally. That includes the, the board-appointed inspector general and the Civilian Oversight Commission. A lot of people working overtime. Now, back in 2018, Villanueva called himself a Democrat and won, but he's moved to the right since then, refused to enforce a vaccine mandate in his department, publicly blames Democrats for the homelessness crisis here. Can he win again, appealing to a different constituency, talking, you know, conspiracies involving the press? Now, he declined our request for an interview, but he has since clarified on Twitter that the L.A. Times reporter is, in fact, not a suspect and he's not pursuing criminal charges against her in his video leak investigation. Jake? Disgraceful. Nick Watt, thanks. Appreciate it. Also in Los Angeles tonight, an inside look at the real story behind the L.A. riots. Why what happened is still relevant now. It's the fire that still burns. That's tonight at 11 o'clock Eastern, only here on CNN. President Biden pointing blame for his low approval rating. Stay with us. And we're back with our politics lead. President Biden is gearing up for a fight ahead of the midterm elections. According to new CNN reporting, Biden is frustrated by his low approval numbers and he's railing against the people he thinks aren't helping, including fellow Democrats. But a dozen sources familiar with the president and his inner circle tell CNN that Biden is eager to hit the campaign trail and go after Republicans. Let's discuss. I'm going to start uh, with you, uh, Paul, just as a the Democrat at the table give you an opportunity to defend what's going on here. So here's some of the CNN reporting from Edward Isaac DeVere. Quote, Biden keeps telling his team that if he can just get out of the White House more, he'll be able to convince more people, Americans and lawmakers, to support his agenda. COVID-19 and then Russia's invasion of Ukraine have both been used as explanations for why he hasn't followed through. Among some aides, the persistent vows to get around 
have become something of a punchline. It's always a comms problem, isn't it? It's always, <laughs> it's always just a not hearing from the president enough. That's always what it is, no matter who the president is. In this case, it's a strategy problem. Yeah. Right? They tried a strategy of bipartisanship. Mostly failed. Important infrastructure bill, which the Republicans should, who voted for should get credit for, and, and the president, the Democrats. But mostly it failed. Then, I never hear them talk about it. You've talked about it more on the show today than <laughs> right. I've heard. Well, then, though, they entered this phase where we're going to brag on our accomplishments. Well, when 71% think you're moving in the wrong direction, that's not going to work. Mm-hmm. You go to the doctor, you say, my shoulder's killing me. And she goes, no, it's not. Mm-hmm. It feels fine. It doesn't make you happy. Right? So finally, finally, after exhausting every other option, including attacking fellow Democrats, they seem to have hit on a strategy. Democrats attacking Republicans. He needs to, I've been saying this Brilliant. for months. <laughs> I've been saying it privately as well as publicly right. to the White House. He needs to give the not a single Republican speech. Not a single Republican voted to put $1,400 in your bank. Not a single Republican voted to make your child care costs cheaper or your Obamacare costs cheaper or your prescription drug. Not a single. But every single Republican voted to give $2 trillion to Wall Street and big corporations. What's wrong with that? Where's the law that says Democrats only have to attack Democrats? So, There's nothing wrong with that. Right. But... I just think um, it's not the economy stupid right now. I love kitchen table issues. I don't think Democrats have a great answer for them. Frankly, they don't have feasible. Inflation, gas prices. Yeah, and I don't think people want an economics lesson in inflation and how gas prices aren't actually the president's fault, blah, blah, blah. I think Democrats need to ask one question. Do you want more Marjorie Taylor Greens? <laughs> if you do, we're not for you. Keep keep moving. Yeah. We're not going to get your vote. If you don't want more Marjorie's, more Lauren Boebert's, more Madison Cawthorn's, more laws that attack women, more laws that attack LGBTQ, more book banning. If you don't want that, get out and vote for Democrats. And that's know, the message. That's it. But the, the problem is the instinct to go tribal, it makes a lot of sense, especially when everything else is not working. But yeah. this is just not Joe Biden, right? People like were attracted to this president because he wasn't the former president, because he was Uncle Joe, because he worked with Republicans, because he had a relationship with uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. That was sort of the allure of President Biden. Yeah. So right. he has to he, he has to sort of, I think, tread lightly if he is going to try to uh, attack Republicans as a new strategy. I, I still think that question of, of, of Biden saying, do you want more Marjorie Taylor Greens? Yeah. We have to acknowledge that's a big shift for Democrats. When they came in, the midterm strategy was supposed to be that the White House was going to deliver on this right. agenda and it will be about, see, we told you with a unified uh, uh, Congress mm-hmm. and White House that you can get climate change legislation, that you could get voting rights, that you could get all of those things. We're now arriving to this to this midterms moment and they can't say that. All exactly those, right. All exactly. Things that they don't have. All they cannot they, they say cannot that. Say. That's and right. so, so not only is, I'm going to want to stick mm-hmm. with you, not only is Biden frustrated with fellow Democrats for failing to pass mm-hmm. these items that you just talked about. Sources tell CNN he's frustrated with Democrats who are eyeing his job <laughs> and the White yeah. House is annoyed to, quote, Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts inspired the latest eye rolls in the West Wing. This is according to uh, Edward Isaac DeBeers uh, reporting. White House aides were annoyed last week to click on her New York Times op-ed lamenting a stalled Biden agenda and our failure to get big things done. Several of them thought she could have used her platform to tout Biden's successes. Instead, they watched as she got booked onto Sunday news shows to talk about her own mm-hmm. wish list agenda and to be asked if she's going to run 
for president in 2024? You know, I can't speak to Warren specifically, but I do know from reporting that there's an increasing feeling among Democrats that maybe breaking with this White House and with this president is their midterm strategy, that they need hmm. to say that this was a failure uh, uh, coming from there and that, 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 that others will go <laughs> above and beyond, right? Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, this is what your point, that, that to go back to Democrats versus Democrats, but but that's where they are. because, because Progressives or moderates? I, I think that that is across, the, they're looking at the same Everybody. approval numbers that the rest of us are too. They're looking at the same stalled agenda. That is not an opinion by Elizabeth Warren. That's a fact. And yeah. I think that I think that that is people reacting to that, whether that annoys the White House or not. Also, progressives are, are often the first ones to bear the brunt of criticism from Democrats when they suffer big losses and when they mm-hmm. fail. So I see her as trying to get ahead of this. Hey, mm-hmm. don't blame us. Don't she come for to me. Say, I told you so. Exactly. Yeah. Don't yeah. come for Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. We told yeah. you what to do, and y'all ain't doing it. Mm-hmm. That's what I saw that. But is, it, mm-hmm. is that correct? I mean, aren't the moderates the ones? that have stalled the agenda? Is that not accurate? At the end of the day, yes, there was wrangling between progressives and moderates, but at the end of the day in the Senate, weren't the, weren't the moderates the ones to say, I'm not going to vote for that? No, the Republicans were. <laughs> Half of the Senate are Republicans. Biden can't be expected to, to get all 50 every time, get 100% of his party. He ought to be able wait, to get, wait, 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 he ought be able to get yeah. 4% of theirs. I don't know about that. <laughs> why can't, why can't, why can't he be expected Because to it's get a large it? and diverse party. When the Republicans lock down like that, that's to attack Elizabeth Warren. If Elizabeth Warren thinks she can strengthen the movement by attacking the leader, she is wrong. She needs to turn her fire on the people who have stalled this agenda, and it's her Republican colleagues, not the president. Well, listen, I mean, to answer your question, yes, moderates stalled his agenda, but right. they also were the ones that won the midterms. That's true. Right. Uh, so, uh, but, Essie, I want to get your, your th- okay. thoughts on this, because uh, Dr. Mehmet Oz, uh, who is the Trump-endorsed <laughs> candidate for senator in the great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, yeah. he has a new campaign ad about the Second Amendment and okay. gun rights. Take a listen. Our Second Amendment is not just about hunting. It's about our constitutional right to protect ourselves from intruders or an overly intrusive government. So as your next U.S. Senator, I will fight for our constitutional rights. Okay, you had me on hunting. You had me on self-defense. Protect from an overly intrusive government? Yeah, like the one that's banning books right now. Um, But listen. Two things. First of all, the eagle-eyed gun owner in me noticed he's not wearing eye protection when he fires his handgun. That's a small thing, but it's an important thing. Not sure if he also hit that clay pigeon either. But But listen, this is not dumb. As I'm sure you know in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, it is disproportionately high uh, in terms of gun owners and NRA members. I think Paul Um, has a quote about that. it's It's not a dumb strategy in a Republican primary in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. The problem with it is that it doesn't jive with our image of Dr. Oz from mm-hmm. TV. But I think, well, yeah, you know. Yeah, Kenneth's macho. I mean, the next ad, <laughs> he's going to go on Fox News and put his privates in a tanning bed. I mean, that's pathetic. But what's dangerous is he knows this and he knows better. This is a violent time. His, our, our Republican leader, the minority whip, Steve Scalise, was shot yeah. by an animal who targeted him because he's a Republican. Uh, Gabby Giffords was shot. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of violence out there. And I didn't see anything violent in that ad. When you say but he said it, protect it, ourselves against an overly intrusive... Right to protect ourselves what, what from an Seal overly intrusive government. No, What's I the intrusive under- government? SEAL Team 6? Pennsylvania I, I State understand. Police? I did not see New that Jersey? as okay, exciting violence, out of time. I'm so sorry. Thanks <laughs> to one and all. Have a wonderful weekend. When the water runs dry, the resources that cannot come fast enough to save the vital resource for tens of millions of people in America's West. Stay with us. 
In our Earth Matters series, a stamp of disapproval for the U.S. Postmaster General Louis DeJoy, attorneys general from 16 states and Washington, D.C., are asking the U.S. Postal Service to hit the brakes on its planned purchase of thousands of gas-powered trucks. The lawsuits say DeJoy aired when he decided to replace the current fleet with 90% gas-powered trucks and 10% electric vehicles, though the USPS tells the lead the contract is open-ended and they can always buy more Earth-friendly trucks. The current fleet of gas guzzlers get about 8 miles to the gallon. The new fleet will get almost 15 miles to the gallon. That's without the air conditioning running. California Attorney General Rob Bonta warning, quote, we'll be stuck with more than 100,000 new gas guzzling vehicles on neighborhood streets for the next 30 years. There won't be a reset button. DeJoy blames his decision on the U.S. Postal Service's, quote, dire financial condition, unquote. The American West, meanwhile, is in the grips of a climate change-induced mega drought. And Lake Mead and Lake Powell, a lifeline for tens of millions of Americans, are in danger of drying up. CNN's Renee Marsh visited Lake Powell to find state and federal officials taking drastic measures to keep the water flowing and the lights on. This is Lake Powell, the country's second largest reservoir, and it's drying up. Satellite images and CNN video from 2015 versus now shows just how much water has vanished. Miles of rock also tell the story. This ring we see on the canyon walls, they call it the bathtub ring, uh, that's where the water is leached out the iron from the rock. And that's how high the water was. That's how high the water was at one point. You said just in September, the right. water was just four feet above this ledge that we're looking at here, and that's just September. Right. So the water is dropping quite dramatically, quite quickly. It has. As water levels decline, so does power production at the Glen Canyon Dam, which harnesses the force and volume of the Colorado River and Lake Powell to generate power for as many as 5.8 million homes and businesses in seven states. We're knocking on the door of Judgment Day, I think. Judgment Day being when we when we don't have any water to give anybody. Brian Hill runs the public power utility in Page, Arizona, where the federal dam is located. Forty percent of the town's power comes from the dam. Without it, they'll be forced to rely on dirtier energy sources like fossil fuels, which are seeing skyrocketing prices and customers will pay the price. We're probably looking at an additional 25 to 30 percent in their power costs. In a worst-case scenario, the Interior Department projects the dam could stop producing power by January. The agency is now weighing an emergency action that would buy more time. In a letter to seven western states, the agency calls for holding back the equivalent of 42.6 billion gallons of water in Lake Powell. That means deeper cuts to the amount of water people can use in Arizona, California, Colorado, Nevada, New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming. 114 billion gallons of water have already been held back this year. This, as new images show Lake Mead, the country's largest reservoir that gets its fill from Lake Powell, has dropped to such historically low levels that the lake's water intake valve is now exposed. So this is the, the power plant floor. Inside the dam, current water levels still produce power. These are the generators, and that spinning is a result of the water it's coming from the forebay, from the reservoir side. But if water levels drop just another 32 feet, the spinning stops. 
the climate crisis forcing federal and state governments to make tough choices and take drastic measures just to keep water and power flowing to the southwest. Well, Jake, the Glen Canyon Dam has lost 16 percent of its capacity to generate power. And early next month, we expect that a final decision from the Interior Department will come out. Uh, We will learn exactly how they plan to handle this situation so that both water and power keeps flowing to these millions of people in the southwest who rely on it. Uh, But really, you're finding that this climate crisis, as it intensifies, Jake, the federal government, state governments, they're finding themselves in this very tough situation situation where they actually have to make choices, tough choices, and prioritize water versus power. And it's getting more difficult as this uh, climate crisis intensifies, Jake. And still so little will by our political leaders here in Washington, D.C. to take any action. Renee March, thank you so much. Sure. From mega drought to baseball-sized hail, wildfires, and dangerous winds, a recipe for disaster happening across a major part of the United States right now. Stay with us. Extreme fire threats across the high plains in southwestern United States, fueled by a dangerous combination of strong winds and incredibly dry conditions. At highest risk, northern New Mexico, southeast Colorado, and southwest Kansas. Peak fire season does not hit until June, but many states are ahead of schedule. At the same time, severe storms threaten the Midwest and plains over the next few days. Meteorologists warn of possible baseball-sized hail, strong thunderstorms, tornadoes, and damaging winds. Coming up Sunday on State of the Union, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas and Republican Governor Asa Hutchinson of Arkansas. That's Sunday morning at 9 o'clock Eastern and noon on CNN. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in a place I like to call the Situation Room. I'll see you Monday. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.